You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. If you have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. There's a a song in our pre-service playlist that is an old hymn. It's actually sung by a band called Citizens. Um, And the song's called There is a Fount. And so you might be familiar with that hymn. I'm not sure if you've thought about the actual lyrics as they are sung, but let me read some to you. It says this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. Have you thought about the imagery of that song? <laughs> you know, it's, it kind of sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? You know, it talks about uh, a fountain that's full of blood, that's coming from the veins of Emmanuel, and then it's not just like a fountain that you look at. According to the writer, all of us who are sinners are plunged into that blood and we come up and we're cleansed somehow, you know? Um, we obviously know the spiritual significance behind what the author is saying there, but when you think about the song from, from the perspective of someone who is not a Christian, or even for some people who are Christians, it can be uh, strange and something that you don't even want to think about that much. And we just also sang this song where it said that God is holy, Meaning, the word holy is that God is separate. He is unique. He is distinct. The way that God does things is different from the way that we do things. And so when we come to the text today, uh, it's going to seem very different for some of you. And, so, and for many of you who have been here from the beginning of Ephesians, from chapter 1, because I've talked to some of you, You've known that these next few Sundays are kind of like filled with all kinds of fun stuff, you know? There's words like submission, headship, self-sacrifice, slavery, spiritual warfare. Like this is, this is, it's all here, right? In the next few weeks, all kinds of stuff that is very strange to many people and might sound totally different from what our regular Canadian and even our regular church experience is familiar with. So my hope actually is that from uh, today's sermon and for the next few weeks that we will actually uh, grasp with hope what it is that God wants to show us, to tell us, for us to wrestle over and to think through together. Every time we come to the scriptures, every time, and every single one of us, myself included, even as I write these sermons and come and deliver them, we all come with us previous experiences and understandings which shape in many ways how we take the message as it comes to us. Whether it's like the, the easiest 
softball sermon that I would think is a softball sermon or like the hardest one. Our experiences shape how we interpret it or bring it in. So we may have had some sort of really negative experience with X topic, whatever it is, and we then receive it in a way because of that experience. We may also have some very strong opinions about something. Maybe even it's like, this has been our thing, you know? It's like a soapbox that we've stood on. We know about this and we have strong opinions. And now we come to the text on whatever issue it is and it addresses it again. And so our response then is gonna be different because of our experience and because of what we know or think about the topic. So this morning, as we head into this text, I just want to invite all of us to take in the teaching, whether we agree with it or disagree with it, whether we like it or dislike it, let's receive it together with grace, understanding that it's gonna land in different ways and it's gonna be received in different ways, but this is a, a uh, atmosphere, this is a congregation where the grace of God is present for any teaching that will come our way. So, like every other week, we're gonna go through this text verse by verse, okay? And in Paul's teaching here, in the middle of chapter five, he begins with a word to wives because he is now gonna speak to the context of marriage. Next week, he's gonna talk about parenting. After that, he's gonna talk about slaves and servants, and then he's gonna end with spiritual warfare. So, a word to wives here. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I heard uh, feedback once. Uh, I, I happened to be in a church where the pastor was giving a, a sermon on marriage and uh, I was just talking to someone in the foyer after, and I, I, I don't think I was there for the sermon, or I can't remember the context exactly of how it worked, but I said, how was the service, and how was the message? And the guy said to me, the message, it was great, it was challenging and encouraging, it was about marriage, and he didn't use the word submission once. I was like, okay. That gave me a little insight into the... Uh, the word submission itself, how uh, offensive that can be for, maybe and for this context for those who are wives out here, but it might be super offensive for husbands as well or maybe for the single person sitting here, okay? But Paul here in this text pulls out the word submission three times. So it's not just once. He kind of pulls it out three times in the context here. And this is not something that is unique to the teaching of Ephesians. So if we see here in Colossians 3.18, which is a similar book to Ephesians, they're kind of parallel in many ways, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then in 1 Peter 3, verse 1, he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So this keeps coming up multiple times here in the New Testament. And depending on 
your perspective or where you've come from, um, this teaching may land well or not well. Most, most Western ears, this uh, does not land well, okay? I'm not sure where it's going to land on with you, but for most Western ears, this does not bode well because we are in kind of like the ocean of egalitarianism here. So anything that kind of sniffs of like non-egalitarianism is not viewed as well. But I've been in other places uh, in Africa where a teaching like this would land with receptive ears. It would actually land really well. I was talking this week with Liz about the context in Africa, and she reminded me that the women in the village where we were living, when a decision would come to them or a question would come to them on how to decide to do something, they would use a phrase that would say something to the effect of, I sit with my husband. So when a, a decision, a question was asked of them and a decision needed, needed to be answered, they would say this phrase, which literally meant something like, I'm not going to go against my husband because we are one. Literally, it meant this decision is going to take the input of my husband. So reading a text like what I just read to women in that African context would have been viewed as safe and actually liberating. Whereas to many Western ears, it would be viewed as unsafe, possibly even oppressive and dangerous. Two very different perspectives on this singular idea. But let me ask you this, okay? Can submission actually be beautiful and lead to flourishing? Submission in general. Think of a few examples here that I'm going to talk about. First, when it comes to the society that we live in, we have government and we have structures in place. We have police. The, the beauty is that if someone is breaking into your house or if something really dangerous is happening, you can actually call the police and someone will come to this situation and will provide aid and help. And in that moment, we are all generally glad that we're going to submit to their authority in this situation as it's happening. So from the government perspective, from a parenting perspective, we're going to get into this next week as well, but when parents exercise good, especially godly authority over their children and their children, uh, I was going to say gladly submit. They don't always gladly submit, but when their children submit to the authority of the parents, children can actually flourish in that context. It might not last for more than 10 seconds, but they can flourish, okay, in that context when they submit to the authority of their parents. In business as well, if you're a business owner or if you're an employee, if you have a good boss that you submit to, you can actually flourish and do well as a result of that. I have a, a book in my office called God and Guinness. It's the story of Arthur Guinness, who started the Guinness Beer Company, who was a Christian. And it talks about how Arthur Guinness um, built homes for his employees, opened clinics for his employees, schools for their children so that they could learn and be educated. So when the employees submitted to their boss, it was actually for their good and for their flourishing. Here's the challenge. 
which probably every single one of you is thinking of, sin and corruption affects people. And so in every single one of these examples, be it government, parenting, business, or any other place where you practice submission, sin and corruption can work in so that your and my experience under that submission is not good. It's actually possible that it's hurtful, that it's destructive. And for some of you, maybe not all of you, for some of you, that has been your experience in submission. It's been one of pain. It's been one where the experience of flourishing and benefit is not the overarching thing that you're left with. It's more uh, struggle, difficulty, hardship. And so that often... The negative experience often is the overriding experience that we take with us. So when someone is to ask the question, as I just did, can submission be good or bring flourishing, the negative experience becomes the overriding experience versus the actual flourishing that can happen in submission. The scriptures do not present submission as a bad thing. Let me say that again. The scriptures do not present submission as a bad thing in any context that it's talking about within the scriptures themselves. Jesus himself practiced submission when he was on earth. He practiced submission to his parents, which is just mind-boggling to think about, you know, God in the flesh as a little boy saying yes to mom and dad for whatever he had to do. But Jesus did that. He submitted in all sorts of other ways in society as he lived out his life. And most significantly, he submitted to the will of the Father when it came to his own death on the cross. And the Apostle Paul pulls this out for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Listen to these verses when it comes to Christ submitting himself, who, that's Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus here submits himself, puts himself under the will of God the Father for the express purpose of going to the cross, dying on the cross for our sins. We are the benefactors of his submission to the will of the Father. And he is an example here from Philippians to to follow for us as well. So when we submit in God's way, it is for our good. So here, in this context, Paul is specifically talking to wives, and it's within a greater context that Harold taught on last week, where there is a calling for all of us to practice, on many levels, a co-submitting to one another. So in verse 21, which depending on your Bible, 
21, verse 21 may be included in the section related to wives and husbands because it's kind of the overarching uh, theme that Paul is bringing about here that we are called to co-submit to each other. We submit to one another all the time and in all kinds of ways. That is what we do within the context of the family of God. But now Paul, in this teaching to wives and to husbands, specifically brings out teaching for wives and for husbands. And in this context here, Paul is saying, wives, your calling is to practice submission in the context of marriage. And what can be confusing, that, that may be like confusing already, okay, but what, we, what can be even more confusing is that Paul says, you're to practice this in everything. You see that in verse 24? In everything which kind of makes it seem like, and, and some people interpret it this way, that like the husband has like total, absolute, dictatorial authority. And some people interpret this scripture this way, that Paul said everything, so must mean everything, you know? What I want for supper goes. What I want, you know, for us to do this weekend goes. And some people have actually put this into practice and have uh, lived in a way where wives have no say at all in the marriage. So what does this mean then in everything? Because it's there. So submission in everything, what does that mean? And this is where the rest of Scripture can actually be helpful for us in understanding what does that mean? Using other Scripture to make sense of that is very helpful, especially in this case. So we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3, where it gives us some insights into actually what submission looks like. Because Paul is actually talking about, sorry, Peter is talking about submission in chapter 3 as well. So listen to these verses, starting in verse 1. Peter writes this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So in this context, Peter is talking about wives who are married to men who are not believers. And he says, still in that context, your calling is to submit in that context. But he says, your conduct then, your, your life is actually going to speak for you. Then in verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. We're not going to touch that stuff today. But verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's Sight, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by, the submitting, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, there's, there's a lot in there, and we're not opening everything in that passage. But I just... I. Quote, I'm quoting here a theologian who said there are elements here in this text that help us understand what it is that wives are called to do, what the everything is. And I put it on a little list here for us to kind of see what the everything cannot mean, okay? What the everything cannot mean, at least from this First Peter text. It's this, that, I, 
that couples agree on everything. Okay, because in 1 Peter alone, there's a disagreement on the wife following Christ and the husband not following Christ. So it can't mean that. Second, it can't mean that wives leave their brains at the altar. So Paul is not saying, when he says submit to everything, that wives have no more like thinking to do. Because these women here have chosen to follow Christ, even though their husbands don't. Third, that wives don't try to influence their husband to change. Peter is actually telling these women to do that. Live in such a way that, you know, the husband will actually become a believer, that he'll change his thinking. So these wives are actually called to do that. Fourth, that wives put the will of their husbands before Jesus. Peter's saying, your primary the primary person that you're listening to is actually the Lord Jesus Christ because you're a believer. And then lastly, that wives get all of their spiritual strength through their husband. Peter's saying your hope is actually in God, not in your husband and all that he brings to the context of your marriage. So when Paul says in Ephesians that wives are to submit in everything, Peter's teaching helps bring a balance to that, that women are actually called to follow Jesus. And, and my perspective on this, there's different scholars that view this differently, but the thing that makes the most sense to me here is that Paul is saying that there is, there's no area for a wife where the input and leadership of a husband is not welcome. So when Paul says, submit in everything, Paul says, wives, this, this oneness that you are living out in marriage is to be in every area of your life. And I would think the teaching would be the same as well for husbands, that there is no area of your life where you can say, this is my area. You know, like marriage is all about oneness, but no, this is, this is my place. Paul says, no, everything, when you come together, is for each other, and especially here in this context, for women. So, how do wives live out submission? I'm not going to give you 10 ways to do it, okay? Because I've never been a wife before. I'm going to just look at the text here and see what the text is telling us. So, how do wives live out this submission? The first is this, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. You see there in the, in the text that we read that he says, wives submit as to the Lord. That's how you're called to do it, as to the Lord. This teaching is within a context of submitting, co-submitting one to another, but it's also in the context of this spirit-filled life. If your Bible is open, look at verse 18, which is really the beginning of this whole teaching here. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is the root of the teaching here. It's like if you're diving into a pool, you jump off that diving board, you know, you take that one spring. The spring here to do these actions is the spirit-filled life. It is a heart that is following Christ. And so I think it was two weeks ago we talked about this practice of a rule of life, of making Christ the primary 
point in your spiritual life following him and following his teaching. This is actually the springboard for this submission for wives as to the Lord. And secondly, so first is follow Jesus. Secondly is find your way. And this is maybe more implicit in the text. He's not saying this directly. But he doesn't go into detailed description of what this should look like. Paul doesn't say, okay, wives, you should not be working outside the home. Okay, wives, you should not be making more money than your husband's. Wives, you should not be doing this. Wives, not that. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, follow Jesus. If anything, Paul says in other books, talk to each other. Talk to older women who have been married and who have learned some lessons and learn from each other. Figure out how to do this. Paul's not going into details. He gives the principles of the teaching and then he says, follow it. Rebecca McLaughlin says this, in this picture, the wife plays the part of God's people who gladly submit to Jesus and follow his lead. The call on wives to submit to their husbands isn't just because women are somehow inferior to men, just as the call on husbands is to give up their lives for their wives isn't because men are less valuable than women. Number two, a word to husbands. Paul then goes on and speaks to husbands. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So here, in verses 25 through 30, husbands are not told to submit. That's not the teaching for husbands here. It's very specific. It says, husbands... Love your wives as Christ. Love your wives as Christ. Paul's teaching here in the cultural context is, is butting up against a Roman view of marriage where the husband had total control and authority. A Roman writer, Demosthenes, I worked on that name for a long time, Demosthenes, okay, that's the Roman writer here. He writes this. This is the perspective on marriage, okay? We have courtesans, basically like uh, prostitutes, for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for our household affairs. What's he saying there? He's saying this is the perspective for men in the Roman world. You can go have sex with prostitutes anytime you want, you can have concubines in your home that are gonna just kind of take care of all the things. And then you have a wife who your hope is that she's gonna give you an heir, a male heir. That's the perspective of marriage. Guys, total freedom, sexual liberty wherever you want, and controlling of the household. This is, 
This is the air that the audience is breathing and is familiar with when Paul now comes to the teaching and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's where it is landing. The desire for power and control is strong for all of humanity, but especially for men as well. To be able to like grab control of something and to hold that power is very appealing. And so Paul is wanting to redefine that, to reset that for the believers. The disciples even tried it a few times with Jesus. I've read this, well, we covered this when we went through Mark, but James and John come to Jesus at one point in the Gospels, and they say, we've got a great plan. We want to rule with you. We want to be one on your right, one on your left. We'll rule together. We can have power. And so Mark 10, verse 42, records some of this conversation. It says this, And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying this temptation to kind of grab power, to hold on to power, is very appealing, but he says this is not the way of Jesus. And this is not the way of leadership or of even serving. It's not going to be from a position of ultimate power. It's going to be from service, humbly serving. And so that even in Jesus' own interaction, Jesus was never married, but in Jesus' interactions with women in the Gospels, you see that they felt safe around him. They could come to him. They could talk to him. This is what it was like to be in his presence. And this attitude of service is what Paul here brings to the teaching and says, in marriage, this is your calling now, husbands. This is what you're called to do. Love your wives and to put it into practice in the way that is seen as service and humility and that follows Jesus' example. If submission was offensive, this is equally as offensive today. To say that men are called to serve and are called to give their lives up is offensive and maybe rejected even more than the first teaching, okay? So I know I'm, I'm in it today, right? This is the text that we had today. This is it. Offense all around. And yet it's presented here through the life of Jesus and through Paul's teaching as a beautiful image of this is what marriage is. So, husbands, how do we live this out? How do we live this out? Again, Paul does not list the 10 things of how to do this, so we're gonna look at the text and see how Paul addresses it. And the first is we are called to die to ourselves. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. That is our calling, to 
to love in a way that is self-sacrificing, to love in a way where wives are lifted up because of our service and the way that we are expressing love in the context of marriage. To consistently, regularly set aside our choice, the things that we would want for the good of our wives, and if there's children in the family context, for the good of the children. This is the calling for husbands, it's, it's a high calling. It's a costly calling because I don't know about you, I actually have plenty of examples where I can think of where I did this not so well and maybe a few where I did this well, okay? Where it has been very difficult to practice self-sacrifice. Where I would much rather just kind of sit on, on my phone and watch a football game or something rather than engage with either my wife that's there or with the family context. This is where this teaching lands. It's in the everyday moments of life, the moments on the couch, the moments in the home. That's where this teaching lands. It's not some sort of like theoretical thing. Self-denial is all around us and the opportunities as husbands are presented daily often. So coming into the kitchen and seeing a pile of dishes and thinking to myself, I didn't make those dishes. That's not on me. Rather than thinking this is an opportunity. It's a moment. There's a moment right there. Coming home from work, and I remember this often, coming home from work and coming into like the madness of the kids when they're toddlers. Our kids are not toddlers anymore. Coming into the madness of the kids that are toddlers, and rather than thinking, I just had a long day, you know, 12, 13 hours, whatever it was, I'm pretty tired, I'm gonna just relax a little bit and wait for dinner to be ready. Rather than having that mindset, it's coming to the mindset of like, This is the moment that's before me. How am I called to self-sacrifice, to deny my choices, even the choices that the Canadian society would say, as an egalitarian, you don't have to make that choice. This is an equal household. Paul's saying, husbands, your calling is to love self-sacrificially. And secondly, he says, that we are called to bring about nourishment. See there what he says in verse 28 and 29. Paul says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it. We all know what that's like. We take care of our own bodies. We do all kinds of stuff. We feed ourselves. We exercise. It's, it's uh, Movember. There's probably some mustaches out there. Like we do all kinds of stuff to take care of our bodies as husbands. But now Paul says that nourishment, that effort that you put into your own life, you're called to actively bring that into the context of marriage and to bring into it a nourishment. And I, I think from the text here, Paul's primary thought here is the, the greatest nourishment that your marriage needs 
is the nourishment of the word of Jesus Christ. Your spiritual life must be a primary point in your life as an individual, but also in the context of your marriage. So this means, husbands, that you are to be involved and active in the spiritual life of your marriage and if there's children in your family. Now here's what it doesn't mean. Some people read this or hear this and they think, okay, I have to know more theology than my wife. I have to be a better communicator or a better teacher than my wife. It doesn't say any of that in here. Your wife may have a PhD in theology, okay? It, Paul doesn't say any of that. Paul says you're to be active, involved. And once again, just like wives, I would say a, a rule of life of your discipleship with Jesus should be primary. So we talked two weeks ago about the practice of Sabbath, prayer, scripture, community, generosity. These are things that should be a part of your life. And you are actively bringing that then to the context of your marriage. So Paul has a teaching for wives. Paul has a teaching for husbands. And finally, Paul ends this teaching with a word for everyone. With a word for everyone. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So every culture around the world has some form of marriage, some form of bringing people together in, we use the word covenant, some sort of uniting of people in marriage. And there's all kinds of reasons why people do that. Maybe it's, you know, they think that it's a great way to have, bring people into this world, children. Maybe it's great financially. Maybe there's religious pressure or cultural pressure. Whatever the reason, marriage exists. But here now, Paul is saying, this is actually the origin story of marriage. Whatever view of marriage you've been given, whether it's the context here in Ephesians or us here, there may be elements of it that are true and right and good, but there are other elements of it that are not true and right. So Paul goes back to Genesis, and he says, this is God being the creator of marriage. This is what marriage is. And so he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 24, where he says, God made Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, two different people, Yes, different biologically, but also different in how they come together and are brought and made one. So Paul says, this is like a miraculous thing that God did. That he, in his mind, from the beginning of time, he had made this thing called marriage where two different people would come together and they would be unified, they would become one. Paul says, this is what marriage is. There's all kinds of other cultural things that get brought to it. But the, the heart of it is that these two different things would come together and be made one. And then Paul says, here's the profound mystery. And he's used this word mystery a couple of times for a few different reasons. But now he says, this marriage is a mystery that is profound. 
Because what it's been saying from the first wedding of Adam and Eve, what it's been saying is that God is working out his purposes and it's all going to point to Jesus. Even this marriage, as it comes together of Adam and Eve, it's going to profoundly point to something that's so much greater than just two people coming together. As wonderful as that is, it's actually going to point all of humanity to the loving, self-sacrificial act of Jesus' death for his bride, the church. That's what marriage is. So whether you're married and you're a husband or a wife, or whether you're single and you may someday get married or may never get married, or you're not married anymore, whatever context you're in, Paul's saying the profound mystery, the teaching actually to take away from this text is that Jesus is this self-sacrificial lamb who has given himself for the people that he loves, his bride, the church. Rebecca McLaughlin, one more quote from her. Actually, it's kind of two separate ones. She says this, The call for husbands and wives to play different roles in Christian marriage is not because men are smarter than women or because women need more love than men, but because Jesus and the church play different roles in the much greater marriage to which human marriage points. She goes on to say, Ephesians 5 used to repulse me. Now it convicts me and calls me toward Jesus, the true husband who satisfies my needs, the one man who truly deserves my submission. The next time you're at a wedding, whenever that is, and all the event is happening, enjoy that event. I mean, celebrate the people that are there. They invited you, okay? So like enjoy the food and and take part in everything. But at some point in the service or at the meal, as a Christian, ponder the reality of what's really being witnessed there. Wonder at the magnitude that these two people coming together are bearing witness again for us, especially as believers, that Jesus has expressed his greatest love for his bride, us, his church, through the cross, self-sacrificing for our good and for his ultimate glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice that brought us into relationship with you. Lord, it is a mystery, just like the mystery of a man and a woman coming together in marriage is very profound, Lord. It's very complicated. And so, Lord, we just pray for your grace to grasp and to hold and to live out the reality of Jesus' grace in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.